All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Minds with Bobby. The object of the show is to speak to other philosophically minded people in an unassuming way as we explore some of life's big questions. And today I am joined by the husband of one of my earliest guests, Ishik Cotton. Her husband, Glenn Cotton, is here to talk to us today. Um, when we had Ishik on, she talked about her uh, upbringing and her role in the spreading of the Baha'i faith. I characterized her as a community organizer because she is one of the pe one of the few people I know that's poised to really organize the community, uh, and Glenn as well. Uh, Glenn, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Nice to be here. Good. So, um, your your wife Ishik had a really interesting story about her upbringing with the Baha'i faith in Turkey. Um, I just realized that I don't know, where were you born and raised? I was born in Buffalo, New York. And I know that you, I know that you spent a lot of time, uh, well, not a lot of time, but I know that you spent some time living in different places growing up. One of my favorite yeah. stories that I like from you, uh, and I was wondering if you could tell it again, is uh, the time you spent in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so just a little background, I guess, that, that um, when I was uh, in uh, elementary school, just, uh, uh, oh gosh, I guess it must have been around third or fourth, third grade or so, uh, my father um, got, uh, he, he was employed by the uh, U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development. Uh, so, and, and that was, he made his career uh, in that. So that's what took us in my childhood and adolescence, that's what took us to many different places. Um, and uh, the first place was Thailand, actually. Uh, uh, and that was, uh, but that was when my father was working uh, with USAID in Vietnam. Um, so we moved to, and, uh, but my mother and my sister and I were based in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, it was called Safe, Safe Haven since the war, the war was going on at that time. Um, and that was, um, so we moved to, we, yeah, we moved to Thailand in 1971. And I was there for three years. We were there for three years. And then in 1974, I guess it was the summer of 1974, there was uh, something called the Paris Accords which were negotiated by uh, Henry Kissinger and uh, North, North Vietnam and uh, to end the hostilities. Um, and uh, that, when that happened, uh, there was a now, um, it was considered safe for, for us to rejoin, to the family to reunite. Before that time, for the three years uh, when I was in, we were in Thailand, my father would come and visit, but, probably twice a year. Were you worried about him at the time? Because he was in a was too young. I was too young to do yet work. Mm. Um, let's see, I would have been in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Um, uh, and he didn't, he, he didn't talk much about, uh, about um, that. And he was probably fairly safe because there was a large US presence uh, then. Um, but uh, anyway, after, after the, we, we, we joined him in Vietnam, we lived in Saigon uh, from the summer of 1974. And then uh, 
sometimes several months later, um, the uh, North Vietnamese did not um, abide by the treaty. And uh, the United States politically did not, no longer had the will to prop up the uh, South Vietnamese government. And so the fall of South Vietnam or, or, the, or the reunification of Vietnam, for which, depending on which perspective you take, uh, happened quite uh, quickly. Um, uh, it's a, a matter of months um, that, that uh, there was, yeah, the, the South Vietnamese didn't have the will to fight. At that time, uh, I was in seventh grade and uh, I was more aware, you know, I was a junior youth. I was uh, aware of what was happening and very, very interested <laughs> in uh, what, what was happening and what we were there in the, in the middle of. Right. And did you actually, you actually witnessed an aspect of the warfare? Um, I, the, the, the closest that, that, that came to us was uh, as, as things were crumbling, uh, as the um, South Vietnamese government was folding up, basically, um, we had to quickly pack and um, so we were, we were, I remember we were actually getting reports. I even went with, the, with um, I remember attending a report at the U.S. Embassy or USAID or something. Um, and uh, they were just showing basically a map of one province falling and another province falling and the armies kind of fleeing and leaving all their equipment behind, the South Vietnamese army that is. Um, but those were, those were reports so that the, the, the there was a bomb that went off um, in the park across from our um, apartment, and that was a planted. That was bomb was planted there. It was a terrorist. Um, it wasn't warfare. You know, it wasn't a, a, a shell being that was lobbed there. Uh, but I remember that. I remember that the bomb going off. Remember my mom being very, very. Uh, um, she she was really nervous. Um, and uh, uh, distressed about about everything. Um, I was just again. I mean, I was I was aware. I was just kind of, um, but not not aware enough to be worried about um, uh, physical harm. I was uh, more just uh, um, uh, re really interested in in the uh, being part of history. <laughs> yeah, there's there's only a few rare times where you know that you're actually a part of history in the making as it's happening. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, now, so. before you were in Thailand, you were raised in Buffalo, New York, up until you were in like third grade. No, there were a few other places, so we, oh, we wow. moved quite a bit. Yeah, that um, we left Buffalo when I was, I think, I was five years old, uh, four or five and uh, moved to uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, and that was where my, that was for my father's um, doing his doctorate there in, in political science. So that was at the University of uh, West Virginia. Um, yeah. One of the things that's just interesting about this is because I noticed that uh, it's very hard to pin down the manner in which you speak. Um, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> like, uh, I wouldn't call it an accent, but it's a very indecipherable pattern of speech. Um, <laughs> you know, normally, people are, you know, raised in one area and they pick up the patterns of speech of the people around them. 
Um, yes, but there are just a lot of inflections that I notice you have that aren't consistent with any <laughs> other, you know, geographical region. Well, I've had a very multicultural upbringing. Um, yeah, that, from these travels, also even you know, in my own my family, my mother's German, um, and uh, so I've even at a young age, I I, I spent quite a few a, a few months in Germany with my mother, um, and uh, and then of course, yeah, all these uh, all these different accents I wore that were I was surrounded by. Uh, growing up in these different countries. Um, so besides uh, Thailand and Vietnam, there was also later in, in my adolescence, there was also El Salvador and um, Haiti, Haiti. Um, so uh, there's, yeah, and, and more places as an adult. Um, but so, I guess the, the accent was formed in an earlier <laughs> stage <laughs> there, probably. Yes, yes. So, um, to bring it back to the uh, Baha'i faith for a minute, were you born and raised as a Baha'i? Um, I wouldn't say that. I was born and raised knowing about the Baha'i faith, I would, I would say. Um, my uh, father, in this way, we had a similar, actually Ishik and I had a very similar situations. Uh, so in your conversation, I suppose it might have come up with Ishik as well, that um, but in my so in my in my circumstance, um, my father. Uh, I heard about the Baha'i faith. I almost had to kind of really um, um, my father. My father. You, well, he was he was inactive. You could say he was he was not an active Baha'i. Uh, he wasn't uh, really participating in the in the um, Baha'i community for for most of my life, and. Um, so it was uh, it, really my own religiosity or or, or spirituality uh, was was came about for myself. You know, I was I was asking questions about God at an early age, um, and it was to the in response to those questions, my father did uh, tell me about the Baha'i faith, um, and he uh, I remember that he mentioned to me when I was. Um, Probably in second grade or so, um, he uh, he, and this was again in, in response to the my starting to ask big questions, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, very earnestly. You know, I, I was really I was as, uh, seeking at a young age, um, and uh, he uh, he gave, he he told me about he 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 he. I remember he drew something that was kind of a, a, a little diagram of what Baha'is call progressive revelation. He drew a, he drew a sun and he says, okay, this is God, which we can't, we can't reach God, we can't touch God. Uh, but there, then God shines his light into, onto hum, human consciousness or humanity, um, mainly through the appearance of these mirrors, these perfect mirrors that reflect God's light to us. And these mirrors are the manifestations of God, um, uh, and he he even put the names there in rough the rough uh, dates, um, Krishna, uh, Abraham, um, Buddha, Moses, Buddha, Jesus Christ, Muhammad, and then most recently the Bab and Baha'u'llah, and and then he so he he made a little diagram and that made sense to me. Right. 
He so also gave it. me a couple of prayers, uh, two, two short little, little prayers that, that I used, started using. So then was he raised as a Baha'i? Because I, have to, because I know that there, there are no. not that many people that I know about that have that kind of knowledge of the Baha'is who aren't one. Yeah, no, he, he um, was not raised as a Baha'i. He, he became a Baha'i in 1956. Um, and that was from his own search. I, um, he often, when he talks about it, he often mentions that the death of his father has having been, been a big motivating factor when he, he was, uh, I think, 15 years old when his father passed away. And he was very close to his father. Um, and it was a sudden passing. Uh, there was some brain, brain hemorrhage, as I understand it. Um, and that kind of uh, set him on a, a spiritual search. Um, yeah, I could say the exact same thing for my grandfather uh, was set on a spiritual quest, the death of his mother when he was uh, 15, yeah. which is what led him to, uh, well, uh, yeah. becoming a Messianic Jew. Ah, okay. Jesus. Very interesting. Very yes. Interesting. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, he talks all about it in uh, my second episode. Oh, um, fantastic. But I'd like to if hear I had, yeah, sure. If I had a if I had a childhood like yours, though, what probably would have led me down the path would be just seeing all these different types of people. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I know that one of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i Faith is the unity of all people, or maybe yeah. which might be its most important principle. Right. Um, and you probably have a unique perspective of being raised around all these different types of people. Did that influence you at all? Absolutely. Um, though, though it, I mean, it didn't, um, my, my, my spiritual journeys, I, I guess you could say, started before we started moving to different places. So there was also a personal, a personal aspect to that of, of just, um, um, yeah, there, there, there was, you know, certain factors in my life that uh, for whatever reason I was, I was, I was, seeking at a young age but then i was very impressed yeah so so uh when we when we moved to thailand for example the the uh the um uh, i was very impressed by buddhism um and i remember i remember going to school um uh early in the morning unfortunately i'm not i was never a morning person <laughs> and uh my father my mother used to wake me up before that it was even light out uh, because I had to catch the bus to go across the city. It was a long bus ride. Uh, the traffic was bad then in the 1970s. It's even worse now um, yeah, in Bangkok. Uh, but I remember that that early, early in the morning, looking out, looking out the bus window, and there would be the monks with begging bowls. Um, and there would be some, usually women, uh, lined up to, to um, give their, put some food into their bowls. And I just remember being very impressed by just the serenity, the serenity of that. Um, the, 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 the monks would uh, uh, seem very, um, I was impressed by their manner and, and also the reverence uh, with the, 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 uh, that whole culture of the, the, the woman would bow, they put the food in the, in, in the, in the begging bowl, the, man, the, the monk would bow and, and uh, it's, uh, it was just very touching to me. And then I also remember in the Buddhist temples, um, hearing, hearing um, uh, the, the chanting of the monks. Um, so that, that really uh, impressed me. 
Um, I was also actually had another, another uh, I guess, the second stage of be becoming Baha'i, I guess you could say, with uh, sec my second exposure to the Baha'i faith was that there was a time for some reason, at that time, my my mother was uh, taking us to attend Baha'i uh, meetings um, at uh, the uh, Baha'i Center in Bangkok. There was a lady there named um, Shireen Fazdar. Uh, she was an elder, older lady, um, or at least she had gray hair. She was Indi Indian lady. Uh, and I found out later, actually quite, she was like the, um, uh, a pioneer in, 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 in women's um, uh, um, emancipation and suffrage in Southeast Asia. Uh, and also a very, very uh, um, significant person in the Baha'i faith. She was, uh, um, uh, yeah, had been from a, from a long time she had been all her life a Baha'i, I think, and she had actually, as a child, sat on Abdul Baha's lap. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> so Abdul Baha would have, you know, for for those who don't know, that he's a son and of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, and he was the one, the leader of the Baha'i community after Baha'u'llah. Perfect example. Very, and I first learned, I started learning about Abdul Baha from her stories of Abdu'l Baha. And I even got this book of stories of Abdu'l Baha and I'm just very impressed by the photographs of Abdu'l Baha and the stories. Um, just how the perfection of Abdu'l Baha, the, the loving perfection of, and perfect um, in every situation that he was in, you know, the doing the perfect thing that needed to be done. Um, even uh, with extraordinary intuition sometimes or extraordinary uh, spiritual insight into, into people's hearts. I will admit it's extremely difficult to not find his, I will admit it's extremely difficult to not find his uh, stories incredibly compelling. Yes. Uh, when, you exactly. or when I read his speeches, uh, the promulgation of universal peace, Yes. Uh, those speeches are, they resonate so much with like almost like Martin Luther King's speech, you know. Oh, sure, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, no, the, the, exactly. And and then the, the his actions, you know, his actions just perfect. I'm speaking of Martin Luther King, you know, his um, you know, imagine in 1912, you know, where he's in this fancy hotel and there's this luncheon for him, and uh. He was just talking with Lewis Gregory, an early African-American Baha'i, you know, and, and then Lewis Gregory quietly, you know, knowing, knowing the culture of the time, quietly um, left the lobby and, and, and let, let Abdul Baha go into the luncheon. And Abdul Baha gets there and all the, set, all the settings are, you've maybe heard this story too, all, this, all the, setting, the, 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 the settings have the, 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 the names of the people where they're going to sit. And Abdul Baha says, where is Mr. Gregory? You know, and of course he wasn't there because uh, he wasn't, uh, there weren't any colored people supposed to be there at that time. And he would not, he insisted, you know, and he rearranged the, the settings and, 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 and uh, so they went to get Mr. Gregory and he sat him to his right in the place of honor, you know. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, it's always wonderful to hear those stories of people that demand that that are so ahead of their time with demanding justice. One of the things that yeah. I found out recently, just because somebody asked me to look it up, was the Baha'i perspective on vegetarianism. Ah, okay. I, I know that Abdul Baha has some <laughs> uh, some kind of quote about how uh, in the future the the consumption of meat will become less and less. Yes, uh, and it will become exactly. less and less necessary, and the end result of humanity will be to be vegetarians. Yes, exactly. That, that's that's the uh, what he said, and and he did also say it's an it's a it's preferable, um, but not not required. I guess you know humanity isn't at the stage yet where it could be a requirement for all of humanity. Uh, but it is, uh, I would say, if you read those passages, you can see it. it it's, it's, I think, implicitly encouraged, uh, yes, in, my, yeah. in my view. Because <laughs> he does say it's, a, it's an aspect of being kind to animals, and, and kindness to animals is a, is a Baha'i principle. And so, back to you personally, what age were you when you formally became a Baha'i? It was in college, so it was, uh, yeah, uh, it was in my third year of, at uh, University of Virginia. And what were you studying? I was studying anthropology and minoring in religious studies. Now, anthropology, that has, a, at least today, a reputation for being a, a field that non-religious people study. Oh, really? Because it's very, very heavily grounded in evolutionary biology. Oh, mm, well, that's a branch that that's no, I was I was studying cultural anthropology. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and uh, that's more my understanding. I, I think that's the more the larger guys, uh, percentage, I guess, of, of anthropologists are not the physical anthropologists, but the cultural and cultural anthropology. And and in fact, I find it uh, that they, they a lot of uh, Anthropologists are more open to, um, to uh, let's say, um, especially the mystical and ritual uh, sides of, of, of uh, uh, re religions of the world because, because the anthropologist is supposed to be kind of a, a good anthropologist is kind of a chameleon, you could say. He's uh, able to put himself in the, in the mindset uh, to a, of the other culture. Uh, anthropologists are known for going native, right? <laughs> yes, yes. They 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 actually go and live among the people that they're studying. Exactly, exactly. So, and I it was very interesting actually. At at that time, there there was um, I, I took some very interesting courses uh, of people that were um, I would say uh, very sympathetic to to the uh, to the to the spiritual or religious systems that they were teaching us about. Um, so it was quite interesting. Now you said that you've, you know, you were impressed by Buddhism for a while. Yes. Uh, were you, were you ever, did you ever consider yourself a formal member of a different faith? No, no. I, I was, um, I, I experienced different faith communities. Um, but uh, yeah, never joining, never, never joining one. Um, my, my search was motivated by the Baha'i teaching of the independent investigation of truth. 
Um, and I could, the way I interpreted that actually was part of the reason you could say it took me so long to decide I was a Baha'i because um, since I had known about it all my life and I had, I had been attracted to it uh, since, early, since childhood. Um, but I really took that seriously. I, I, the questions I was asking myself, for example, was, okay, what if I had not been born in a Baha'i family? Would I, would I be you know, becoming a Baha'i? Um, and so I really felt that the independent investigation of truth required me to, um, at least it me, it required to, to investigate other religions. All, and I did, and I found great beauty in, in many different faiths. And then I had to admit by that I, I finally had to realize, I, I did realize, realize that I was seeing them all through the same, through the lens of Baha'u'llah, who teaches the oneness of religion, you know. The oneness of Baha'u'llah helped me to see the beauty in Buddhism and in Christianity and the truth in, in Buddhism and Christianity and Native American religions was also an interest of mine and Sufism and uh, Hinduism and, and uh, is Sufism I, is Sufism an off or not an offshoot but a branch of Islam a branch of Islam so that would really be Islam it's the mystic tradition of Islam you could say the most important one of the most important mystic traditions of Islam. Now, I've never heard of this. Uh, what are the uh, sort of traditions or, I don't know anything about Native American religions. What did you find when you were studying? Oh, those? really? Oh, it's so, it's wonderful, really. Um, uh, I, I, I love the, um, okay, so, so, well, the closeness to the, closeness to nature is certainly part of it. It's, uh, um, and, and reverence, but it's a, a reverence for for the spirit that of of God. I mean, there, there's it's it's certainly monotheistic, you know, the great spirit, and and how he manifests in nature. Um, there's a, but there's certainly this sense of stewardship of nature, and and I would say I resonated with that because I think my first experiences of God were were. Um, at that early stage in, in childhood, I definitely um, uh, felt God in nature. Uh, that, that was, uh, I, I related to that. Um, later, as a, as a um, in, in, in uh, let's see, in, in, uh, as an adolescent, did I ever have a direct experience? I must I did more later on have more more experiences. I've done a sweat lodge, for example. I've done sweat lodge twice, and a sweat lodge is a is a cer is a is a native ceremony of a very intense prayer, and a ceremony where and it's a, it is a, they build this kind. Of, it's a sauna basically, you know. Mm -hmm. They build a sauna and it's it's dark and it's supposed to symbolize the the womb or going back into the womb, I guess, in a sense. And it gets very hot in there, and you say you pray, say these prayers from your heart, and uh, uh, it was a very, very intense experiences and be beautiful experiences that I had with that. Uh, one of those sweat lodges was, was with a Native American shaman. Uh, he was a Lakota, I believe he was. Uh, uh, is that Sioux? Yes, yeah. We the Americans uh, had called it Sioux, but uh, they called themselves Lakota. <laughs> Just making sure I remember, because I actually had, uh, I was actually just researching um, 
a famous Sioux, a famous Lakota, uh, Billy Mills, who's the, oh, okay. uh, the, only, uh, the only American to ever win the Olympic 10,000 meter track title. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> it's just interesting that I was just looking him up the other day. Um, interesting. Only person from the Western Hemisphere to ever win it, actually. Those, those oh. long distance titles almost universally belong to, uh, uh, I believe, uh, East Africans. Yeah, these days, East Africans. And then there, it was also a lot of Europeans uh, about 50 years ago or so. There's, I used to be very interested in Olympics too. So that, that, that's, um, I, used to I heard that they're being postponed to next year, these, this Summer Olympics. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Mm. Um, uh, I do recommend, um, uh, by the way, on the Native American theme, I recommend uh, Black Elk. Black Elk Speaks um, is... is uh, and, and if you if you read that book from a Baha'i perspective, you see some amazing. Uh, some people might say coincidences, but but not coincidences in my view, <laughs> of uh, how yeah he he basically um, had these great visions, and he describes his visions. It, Black Elk speaks is basically at, when he was an old man in the 1920s, I believe it is. He's dictating his life story to, to a, a man named John Nehart, uh, who, uh, an American who's taking it down. And it's a, re it's a remarkable story. He was born in 1863, so he saw the whole change of, he saw the Indian Wars, he saw, he was at Custard's Last Stand, he was at, I believe, Wounded Knee. He was uh, a shaman, very holy man, you can see uh, from his, his things he says. And he had these visions. Uh, and uh, from a Baha'i perspective, you, it looks pretty clear that it was a vision of Baha'u'llah uh, that, that he was having. Uh, and this kind of change, this, this dark time, this difficult time that the world would go through, and especially his own people would go through. But then ultimately, this great new day in which all the peoples of the world would be united. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, now, I know that now you are Dr. Cotton. Um, and you teach English, um, mm. but when you were studying anthropology and religious studies in college, is that what you wanted to do, to be a teacher? Hmm. Um, I, admi I, I, I didn't maybe know it, uh, I hadn't determined that. Uh, I did know that I wanted to be someone who was working for change in the world. So, so my my uh, approach to anthropology was very much uh, that I, I, I wanted it to help me, um, give me the tools to um, understand society and culture in a way that I could be better positioned to be a change agent. Uh, so there was always that. Um, and uh, I, all, I did have some teachers uh, in my uh, uh, childhood and adolescence that, that really impressed me. And so I guess uh, that made a difference in my life. Um, and so, um, but I, my choice to be a teacher, to, to go into education as a field specifically, that came later, that came in um, my 30s uh, when I started to, uh, that's, uh, yes started studying for a master's in education in, in Massachusetts, University of Massachusetts. Uh, and that was in, uh, but, but before then I was still pretty much on a, very focused on um, 
understanding, try, trying to trying to get closer to God. I was I was really an impractical person. <laughs> From my twenties and early thirties, I was pretty much focused on spirituality, and and um, and and social justice issues. But as a as kind of an activist, you could say, as a, yeah. Um, well, it did bring you to Israel, where yes, you worked at yes, the Baha'i World Center. Eventually, yeah, that's right. What uh, work were you doing there? Oh, yeah, that was a very, very impressive uh, life experience. Um, that's also where I met Ishik, and we were married there um, in, in the Baha'i World Center. Uh, and uh, so what I was doing was... Um, uh, I was working as in in uh, an or an uh, institution called the International Teaching Center, um, and that is uh, uh, well, it's it's one of the it's it's an important institution uh, at the Baha'i World Center. It's it's um, not the the highest administrative body is the Universal House of Justice, which is elected by by the um, Baha'is of the world through through stages. Um, it's all elected directly by all of the national spiritual assemblies of the world. But um, every five years that happens. But they, they appoint the members of the, of the institution that I worked uh, as a secretary in, which was a, a nine-member institution of the uh, International Teaching Center. Um, nine counselors, continental, yeah, nine counselors, they're called. And um, they they um, are uh, do a lot of uh, work uh, to assist the uh, Universal House of Justice. Um, and they are there are two there are two branches of Baha'i administration. There is there is the elected branch, and then there is the branch of the appointed. And uh, those are uh, people of wisdom or people that are regarded as having um, that the House of Justice feels. Um, uh, once it gives the uh, gives the um, uh, duty to to um, to over to to encourage and enlighten and um, um, and protect the Baha'i faith. Uh, so these are counselors; they're all over the world. And then the counselors appoint auxiliary board members, and and so there's a so, the, so anyway that that the, the highest body of the counselors is this international teaching center where there's nine members. Uh, their the institution is in in the Baha'i World Center on the slopes of Mount Carmel, and I was a secretary. I was not one of no, definitely not one of those nine. But but uh, I was a secretary to one of them, one of the nine members of the of the um, of, of that institution. Um, just a wonderful time. So so as a secretary, I, I was involved with correspondence. I was also involved with researching issues. Um, uh, to create agenda items for the institution. Um, and some of that research was in the Baha'i writings. Some of that research was um, about uh, field reports from the field of various Baha'i efforts, you know, social and economic development of uh, uh, institutes, um, uh, devotional, you know, things that are happening all over the world, so that was quite eye-opening as well. You know what 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 Baha'is are doing in this in the Pacific Islands, what Baha'is are doing in Papua New Guinea, what Baha'is are doing in the, in the various countries in Africa and um, 
South America, et cetera. Now, the question that I'm most eager to ask is, what was the very first time you met your wife? Oh, okay. Well, that was, that was a, like almost the, the first week I was there. Uh, it might have been even one of the, yeah, definitely within the first week that I arrived there, we were neighbors. Um, yeah, we, she was uh, my neighbor. She, she was a Baha'i. She's working at the Baha'i World Center. She was told that uh, a new, a new uh, volunteer is coming to, to, we were called religious volunteers, you know, we got a small stipend, but um, uh, anyway, so she was, yeah, she was my neighbor and she was asked to kind of look out for me and, you know, introduce me to the, you know, the, 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 the community and, and I mean, and, and practical things like, you know, how to get it, what, where to go shopping and things like that. She did a great job with that. Good. Well, she was, uh, she was a highfalutin member. Uh, from what she told me, like the interpretive services that she was providing, she was providing them for some very important people. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, that, well she was um, basically had the same kind of, she was also a secretary like, like me, uh, but she was a secretary for a member of the House of Justice. So we were in different buildings. Uh, and you may have seen those beautiful buildings, you know. Um, but yeah, if you see a picture of, the, of that beautiful building of the Universal House of Justice, you, uh, Ishik can point to the window where her office was. I can do the same with pictures from the International Teaching Center too. Um, yeah, I've never had a, such a beautiful office, I, mean, I must say. I mean, a holy office, this beautiful marble, uh, just, just, I mean, sometimes when I was working there, I mean, it would get me in sometimes very intense, it was very intense work, uh, very busy work, but sometimes I would still just kind of wake up and look around and just kind of walk around my office and just, uh, just appreciation for the, oh, just in awe of it, you know? So- uh, I can imagine. I mean, I know what that country looks like. It's breathtaking. <laughs> well, especially the Baha'i holy places. Yeah, uh, um, the rest of Haifa, there are some other nice parts to it. Um, there's also some ugly, some not, not so <laughs> nice parts. <laughs> um, so I remember Ishik telling me that she actually, at one point, got a chance to have lunch with Ruhi'i Kanum, yes. who was the, the widow at the time of Abdu'l-Bahá. Yes, um, that's right. And did, not of Abdu'l-Bahá, excuse me, of Shoghi Effendi. Shoghi Effendi, that's right. Um, did you ever get the chance to meet her? I um, was uh, close. I, I, I saw her walk by a few times. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I, she, one of the times she, I think she looked at me, uh, but I mean, but I was, no, I didn't have a chance to have like a, a, one, a conversation or anything like that. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, we, I was there, um, but Ishik and I were there when she passed away. Um, and uh, so I saw her in her very last years and she was uh, frail. Um, but I was certainly very aware of what, what, uh, what a uh, honor, you know, it was just to even be in her presence. Um, and um, yeah, a remarkable, remarkable lady. Um, I did have, now I did have the opportunity to, to be in the presence of some other very, I think, very holy um, beings. 
uh, at the top of the list would be Mr. Furotan, who was also a hand of the cause, um, like Ruhia Kanum. Hey, she had that, uh, they had that station appointed by Shoghi Effendi as hands of the cause. They're all gone now, aren't they? They all have passed away, yeah. So I, I was so fortunate to be able to listen to Mr. Furutan. And, and I had some very interesting conversations. Uh, and in fact, uh, Mr. Furutan was influential in, in uh, my wife and my getting married. <laughs> what did that look like? Oh, my goodness. I wonder if I should say this. <laughs> well, uh, I know we've shared... We've shared this story many times, but um, uh, with with friends, but never, never on us uh, for something like this where we're, uh, but I, okay, I will do it. I will do okay. it. There's nothing, uh, no reason I shouldn't, I guess. <laughs> um, so at this time, uh, Ishik and I were already um, thinking about, as the Baha'i writings say, when you're thinking of, considering marriage, investigate the character of the other person. That's, that's Abdu'l-Baha's most first um, advice, you know. It's important to investigate the character, the, the, the moral and spiritual character of the other person. And so, so we were, you could say we were investigating each other's character and, uh, and just thinking about, okay, maybe, we were even talking about, I think at that time we were talking about, hmm, Shall we get married? <laughs> um, now, were you guys actually like dating, or does it, did or what did it just go to? All right, you know, I think no, this, this would be a, a good no. decision. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a, in the, on that in that way. Yeah, it was. It, we weren't dating. Yeah, we were we were friends. Mm -hmm. We were good friends, and then uh, and then we started thinking, oh gosh, you know, maybe should we get married? <laughs> Um, and uh, so anyway, we were going to the, sh the Shrine of the Bab, very holy, second most holy spot <laughs> in the world from a Baha'i perspective and I think in reality. Um, and uh, Mr. Furutan was coming out. We, we were going there at a time when there weren't a lot of people there. Uh, and we were going there to pray. And I think it was in our mind that we, this is one of the things we wanted to pray about, you know, uh, with each other. Um, and, uh, and it just so happened, uh, this was around right after the, uh, let's say the workday was over, it's probably like five o'clock or so. Most people are going home or making dinner or whatever. We decided to go to the shrine. Uh, so there weren't many people there, and uh, uh, coming the other direction, uh, there was Mr. Furutan. Uh, he was walking with the help of a young, of a youth, of a Baha'i youth that was helping him. To he was also quite, you know, elderly man, uh, and um, and so we met. We met in the middle of the path going to the shrine. Uh, Ishik knew Mr. Furutan, and Mr. Furutan also I believe, yeah, he did recognize me. I had already met him by going to some of his pilgrim talks and uh, asking him questions. <laughs> um, and so I think he, yeah, he, I'm pretty sure he recognized me, but he, he, knew, he knew Ishik uh, better because uh, she had been a translator for him. <laughs> another person, another important person that she translated for from 
English to Turkish. Um, and um, simultaneous translation, I mean. Um, and uh, so, so, uh, so we met, um, and, and I, I, as I remember it, uh, he asked um, Ishik something to the effect of, oh, is this a significant person <laughs> for you? I mean, in your life? In other words, are we, are we thinking about something here? <laughs> And, uh, and then he took, he, he had my hand, he, he was holding my hand and talking to Ishik. Um, and Ishik said, yes, this is my, uh, you know, we're, I forgot the exact words Ishik said, but Ishik kind of indicated um, that, that uh, this is a special person here for me. And uh, anyway, um, and then he was quiet for a while. This is, I, I distinctly remember this and Ishik doesn't remember. <laughs> so it was for me. It wasn't for Ishik, you know. And by the way, it's not uh, there. Are, anybody who has met uh, Handis of the Cause, uh, uh, like Mr. Furutan, will have many stories about moments like this. But this was one of those moments where he kind of, uh, he was holding my hand and he was quiet. And I felt, it seemed to me like he was, um, uh, he, cl he closed his eyes. And I think he was communing. He was communing, right? <laughs> and trying to think of what he should say to be guided, you know, to, to, to guide us, you know. And then when he opened his eyes, he looked at me. Before then, he had been talking to Ishik and holding my hand. But then he looked at me and he said, you have a great opportunity with this one. You have a great opportunity with this one. You have a great opportunity with this one. He said it three times. Um, and so coming from a hand of the cause of God, uh, that was, um, uh, I had to, yeah, that, that made me take extra note of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was a beautiful experience. I'll, I'll always be grateful for that experience. And do you have a time frame of how soon after that it was that you got married? I don't remember exactly. I, uh, yeah, I don't. Like I, that night, just. <laughs> uh, no, 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 it, it was a little more time. Uh, a little bit more time. Because one of the customs of the Baha'i faith is to get the permission of both the bride and groom's parents. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Which we did. We, 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 it, it, uh, it was no problem. Uh, and we had, uh, yeah, we were married there in that, on God's holy mountain, on Mount Carmel. And, uh, and yeah, it was a it was a nice and expensive wedding too. It was uh, basically all potluck. <laughs> it was all just friends. They were bringing bringing uh, food or whatever else, uh, flowers or. Uh, Ishik got her hair done by for free by a by a, 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 a another a Baha'i volunteer at the World Center who was also had been our hairdresser in his previous job. So, so it was all it was all nice. Well, I always found that uh, sort of requirement very interesting that in, in other faiths, well, I don't know about other faiths, but other cultures, um, parents are the ones that specifically will choose who their children will marry. Um, right. And then in other cultures, the parents have no say and actually children will resent their parents if they do mm -hmm. say anything about it. Yes. Uh, I always yeah. found this to be an interesting middle ground. It, it, it is. It is. Um, there's a profound wisdom to it. I mean, I, uh, uh, 
have uh, many stories, but I, I think um, from other people, you know, but for myself, just uh, I would say it has to do with family unity. And I think that is uh, mentioned, that is stated clearly in the Baha'i writings. This is, has, has to do with, um, yeah, the unity of families and, and families being the foundation stones of, of, of a new civilization. And so, and unity being so important for Baha'is, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a, it is a challenge for Westerners. <laughs> yes, certainly. <laughs> um, but, but, I, it, but to be clear, you know, they, 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 it does also explicitly say that, that um, when you, the, 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 the parents are to play no role in, in your, your choosing who you would like to marry. Right. So, yeah. So it is a middle ground, like you said. Their, their, their parents should not interfere in that in that choice, but they do have kind of a veto power, I guess, or 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 an affirm, affirmative power. Well, it's probably uh, like you said. You know, the the power of family unity. A lot of people are probably not thinking long term. With okay, yeah. if my parents really hate this person, like <laughs> this could be this could cause a lot of strife. Yeah. Down, yeah. down the road, right? And but you know, yeah. you you maybe don't see that because you're so overtaken by love or infatuation. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when you 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 guys you guys got married, you came back to the United States after that. Uh, yes, we came back to North Carolina, right uh, where we are now. So. Um, that I had been living in that community, uh, say the same community, um, Durham community, when I left for the High World Center. So uh, it was just logical for me to come back here. But uh, you, I mean, you were here for a number of years, but decided to take your career overseas yet again. Yes, yes. I, um, I wanted to experience Turkey. And also, it seemed like a good place to start uh, my university teaching uh, career. Um, it would have been more difficult to do so in the United States at that time. Uh, so, um, and this was yeah, even before I finished my dissertation, but I had finished, I had finished the, um, the um, research for it. The, uh, and, and then we... Uh, went to, um, so we moved to Turkey and I got a job for, as an English for academic purposes teacher uh, at the university in Ankara, Turkey. And- um, How's your Turkish? Oh, I'm sorry to say, uh, I was, uh, it, it's um, not as good as I wish it was. It, 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 uh, I, know, I know a few words, words and phrases. Um, uh, and uh, but I do intend I do intend once we retire I, we plan to retire to Turkey, and uh, I when we're when we're able to spend more time in Turkey I I am going to uh, I'm going to learn it I'm determined give it the old college try yeah yeah I mean and when I go there on last I mean I I I must say the last few vacations there I was able to pick up a lot more than when I actually lived there. Um, and that's partly because I was immersed in English, and also I must say it was an exhausting job. It was a, a extremely exhausting job, and I just didn't have feel I had the energy to um, 
to uh, learn much Turkish, especially when in when Ishik was such a good translator. <laughs> so. Now, Ishik did explain to me that when she was growing up in Turkey, there were there were some not so pretty reactions to the Baha'i faith at the time when she was growing yes. up there. Um, yeah. When you've been there, have you you haven't have you felt that? No, no, I was um, I was surprised at the um, at how open uh, how how um, open it was, um, and. Uh, Though, um, let's say, let me, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't experience any of that. I heard, I heard about it from Ishik. I also know that it is kind of gone back that way due to the uh, current government and, um, and uh, basically the, um, you know, the, the coup attempt from like a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. Um, that uh, was um, instigated by. Uh, it, it seems to that it was instigated by the followers of a certain, of a certain, um, I guess you could say, cult or or, or uh, uh, a branch of Islam. Uh, that uh, that uh, the leader of which seemed to have been behind the coup. And so it became very, very uh, almost um, right now in Turkey, uh, there's a lot of suspicion about calling yourself anything other than whatever the party line is. Uh, and the party line is basically goes with being a Sunni Muslim. Um, they, they go together. So, um, so yeah, there's, a, there's kind of been damp dampened. Uh, um, but yeah, Baha'is are still very, very active in trying to, you know, work in this in the in the current situation with still trying to be of service to their society, trying to um, have uh, devotionals and study circles uh, to which they invite uh, people. The youth youth are still quite receptive um, uh, uh, there to 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 thinking in new ways. So, and speaking of places where you. Speaking of places where it may be, where you may need to worship as a Baha'i in secret, have you ever been to Iran? Never been to Iran. <laughs> and uh, the, you're right, that would be a place where... <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if it would be the safest option for you, given, you know... Your oh, yeah, I, do. I don't think it would be, yeah. <laughs> Iran, Yemen, right now, Yemen, the Baha'is are being persecuted there. Um, in fact, it's difficult even um, uh, in the Arab world in general. Uh, but boy, the Baha'is that are in the Arab world as a result of this kind of situation are quite strong. Uh, there was a Baha'i that would have been sentenced to death in Yemen. Uh, and he just, do you remember this news? He was just released. No. Uh, he, was, he was imprisoned for almost a year and sentenced to death. Um, but because by, by international pressure, thank God, he was uh, finally released. And I think also because of the prayers of Baha'is all over the world. Um, wow. Yeah. But he I, is a spiritual giant. I mean, uh, from the stories I heard of him and the, the look at his photograph, and you see that he's just an amazing spiritual being. I know that I've met at least, I've met one, I believe, Iranian refugee who's a Baha'i who lives uh, here in North Carolina. Yeah, um, yeah, it's good, yeah. So they did, did they share stories with you? 
No, I didn't feel it appropriate to ask them oh, okay. you know, the first time that I met, but perhaps in the yeah. future. Yes, yeah, it's worth it's worth hearing these stories. Yeah, you can puts things in perspective of of uh, you know the people that really it's where it's kind of a life and death matter. Or about know. how valuable the First Amendment is. Uh huh. That's true. Yeah, that that is true. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> now. Um, you be, you've said that you formally became a Baha'i in college, and I know it's sort of a lifetime orientation that you have to have, um, but how have you noticed it sort of impact, you know, your day-to-day -day life? Because mm. um, I can say for me, when I think about it, I, uh, I gave you the example of, I used to be so angry in traffic is like mm. the most common example I can think of because <laughs> it made me so mad all the time. <laughs> and I would just like start hitting the steering wheel and I would like start swearing a lot. And Oh my goodness. You know, okay. <laughs> there's just something about, there was something about it. And like, sure. now I notice that my blood pressure does not spike. Uh, <laughs> I am able to just sort of, I'm able to sit in a crowded traffic jam and almost view it as like sacred. <laughs> oh yes very good very and see good. it as like okay first of all you know what is actually going to change about me getting super angry about being in this traffic jam right. and then the other the other thing though is something that i i notice runs throughout many faiths you know there's a quote from baha'u'llah be patient under all conditions there's another mm. one from shoghi effendi the end is glorious if only we persevere Right. And I know right. that patience is also a virtue in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Like yeah. There's a reason why patience <laughs> is so valued. Yes. All good things yeah. to those who wait. I don't know what that's from. <laughs> it might be Marcus Aurelius. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't remember, but I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything yeah. like that that's changed your orientation? Oh, well, I mean, the whole thing, it's been, it's really been my my primary motivation in life really um uh i i and and it's because it's the most it's it's the it's the most great beauty you know really i think for me it uh, that's you know baha that's actually one of the titles of baha'u'llah the ancient beauty uh is one of the the ways that people called him what, what they called him when uh, the baha'is called him the ancient beauty or the blessed beauty, and for me, it's just the worldview that the, the, the Baha'i worldview is 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 um, uh, and 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 the examples of of Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha and Shoghi Effendi and the hands of the cause, etc., are just it's it's the most great beauty. I've I've never had such um, the 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 most. Uh, um, sublime moments in my life the most um uh, uh yeah the, the sweet divine sweet divinely sweet moments of life <laughs> uh, have been associated with with um the baha'i faith and so um uh and and uh, i'm just i'm grateful for i i see this life as an opportunity to try to do everything I can do to bring about that world that Baha'u'llah said he came to bring about. 
you know, world of unity and peace and reconciliation and, and uh, justice, finally justice, you know, and, uh, and uh, oneness. So, yeah. And I do notice, I don't, I do notice, I don't find it that often every once in a while, like where I meet a Christian who I feel is actively living a sort of Christian life. Mm. A few people I know who have quite literally given up almost everything they own to the poor um, Mm. and have chosen to live a life of very simple means. Um, And I would say that I noticed that in uh, your demeanor uh, Mm. is, you know, Ishik talked about the Sunday, the Saturday devotionals that you and Mm. her have at your home. And, you know, unfortunately Mm. we haven't had them in a while because of the virus, (laughs) but, uh, you know, but you joined Every, us online the other day, didn't you? Uh, not for the oh, devotion. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay. Well, um, we'll, we'll, well, we're doing them online now. There'll be another one in a few weeks. But I noticed that when you tell a story or if you say a prayer or if you sing a song, um, you know, there's a current that like radiates throughout the room, um, hmm. whether it's you or whether it's Ishik or whether it's uh, almost any Baha'i that I've met, uh, one of our other friends, Saba Mani. Um, hmm there's something that just kind of puts me and I think everyone else in the room into a state where they're, they don't feel judged. They don't feel intimidated. Uh, they mm. feel, I feel as though when I'm being spoken to by another Baha'i, they're speaking to me as though I'm the only person in the room, mm. even if they are speaking to a group of people. Mm. Um, and so I just, uh, I just wanted to point that out because well, thank you. It's very hard to find that in, mo- in many, many communities. Thank and you for pointing that out because, I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I guess uh, one last uh, topic, since you were talking about the moments that you, you know, felt like you were the most sublime moments of your life, mm. do you have something that you would say is your favorite memory? Oh my goodness. Um, yes, but just hard to describe. I mean, mo- so, and, and, and I don't think there's any, there's one, you know, there's, 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 there's many, uh, so certainly moments in the shrine of the Bab and moments in the shrine of Baha'u'llah. Um, some of those and, and in the being in the gardens around the shrine of the Bab and the, the shrine of Baha'u'llah. Um, I hope that you get to do that someday, by the way. I, you haven't. I, 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 okay, I really strongly encourage that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that even a person that knows nothing about the faith feels, you know, if, if they are, let's say, spiritually inclined or, or, um, or have some purity of heart, you know. Um, I've had a, a friend of ours who, who went, was there working at the Baha'i World Center at the same time we were there. He uh, was uh, kind of, sometimes he was a guide at, at the shrines during the time when the tourists would come. Uh, so this was the time when, when it was basically open to all tourists that, to come and see the shrines. And uh, he said that he's had more than once, like, like some people come up to him and said, what is that? what is this feeling, you know, what, you know, asking, and they, they knew nothing about the Baha'i faith, you know, but, but they said, what is that? You know, 
something in the air, you know. So it is, it is noticeable. It, there is this power there that, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, and, uh, and that's what's so fascinating, though, is that the way that you said it just now, as you said, if you're spiritually inclined, what's mm -hmm. fascinating is that the Baha'i faith is, doesn't really seem to be actively seeking people to convert to the Baha'i faith as a primary objective. Right. I mean, it explicitly permits interfaith marriages, for example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It doesn't, I mean, you have a devotional. There's another meetup that I go to that is Baha'i themed, but they explicitly say that they are open to people of all faiths. And it seems to take that very seriously. And, and the houses of worship, right? There are nine, nine doors. Uh, every, every of, there's these beautiful houses of worship on each continent uh, that has nine doors. And, and, and one of the interpretations of that is, is open to the nine religions. Uh, there's, there's more than nine, nine not there's certainly more than nine religions, um, but, but uh, nine is just a, a number of unity. Um, and and, um, and uh, yeah, so, so it's this idea of this space that is open to everybody. And it's consistent with the principle of the oneness of religion. Um, now we are actively teaching, you know, we're, we're, we're teaching the Baha'i teachings, you know, because uh, we regard them as, uh, they're, they're, these are teachings that are the medicine for today. Um, but one of those teachings is the oneness of religion. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that, that all of these religions come from the same source, you know. And and uh, and that we need to unite them. It's I, I really love this one place where Abdul Baha said, um, Abdul Baha said in one of his talks in the United States, um, the Baha'i faith is not another religion. God forbid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is the renewal of religion. It is it is the you know, it is a, another the latest wave in 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 from the ocean of God's religion um that has come to us has come to humanity and 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 the other waves that have come that the wave of that jesus christ brought and the wave that muhammad brought they're all part of the same ocean and they're all and they're all still you know the certainly the spiritual teachings that that the core spiritual teachings are still valid um however it's the it's the social teachings that change according to the needs of the times Right. Um, which probably is what makes it, well, like you said, adapts it to the needs of the times, uh, which is what makes it, uh, I don't know what the word is, but there's something about it that makes it not immobile, uh, mm. like, like the Bible yes. or, or, or the Quran, because what yes. a lot of religious criticizers, what a lot of, uh, mm people who criticize religion say is, uh, you know, they point to some of the more rebarbative primitive parts of the Bible and, right. you know, we'll say, well, why, why did the Jews have to, you know, sacrifice all these animals? And right. Right. And, uh, yeah. It's for another, another time, another level of consciousness um, for which that was significant. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and then that's uh, it. so. These are the forms of religion, you could say, and and um, uh, the form changes. I mean, it. it um, Jesus talked about the the you can't put the new wine in the old wine skin. That was his metaphor. 
for this idea. I don't, I don't know what, what that really means in practical terms. What is it about wineskins that you can't put that new wine in it? But, uh, uh, but that's, I know that that's, I, I think that that's, he was talking about the same uh, spiritual reality, you know, that this, um, actually it's the same thing with art, you know, with, with uh, that, that uh, you know, something that was once beautiful becomes cliche. You know that they become that the, when we especially the, the form loses its spirit, so the spirit also always has to be renewed. And um, in in uh, religious history, that have that process of renewal happens roughly every one thousand years, uh, when a new manifestation of God appears. Yeah. Well, this has all been very fascinating, and. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming on, Glenn, and I appreciate you opening up and getting a little more personal than you would have otherwise have done if I didn't try, but still. Oh, I, it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, uh, look, I was glad uh, to have this conversation with you and look forward to uh, more conversations with you, not, not necessarily on this, on this show, but uh, just in general. I, heart to heart. This is... This is Actually, you asked you asked what some of the sublime moments are. I will tell you some of the some of the also sublime moments are in in conversation. Yes, in, in meaningful spiritual conversation, and some conversations are perfect. You know, yes. uh, there's a feeling that there's almost like the celestial concourse is there. Uh, 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 I don't know. Somehow, there's a there's a there's a um, a true, a true heavenly meeting happening, you know. They are, for, for me at least, they have happened. They're few and far between, but I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about when they do. Yes, happen. yes. Um, anyway, thank you. I'm going to end this and appreciate it, Glenn. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, Bobby. Uh, take care. <laughs>